Today's episode is presented by Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com. We have breaking news out of Israel this morning where Hamas has launched a surprise attack within Israel's borders overnight. First launching rockets from the Gaza Strip, then sending militants into the streets of the southern part of Israel. Hundreds of people have been injured. We are in war. Not in a war. Not in a war. In a war. On Saturday morning, Israel's diplomats around the world received emergency messages on their phones about reports of multiple attacks coming across the border from Gaza. My guest on this week's edition of Powerplay was among them. He's one of Israel's most senior and outspoken diplomats, Ron Prosser. At this stage, all gloves are off. What you've seen in Israel happening, we've never seen before. This is beyond wars, uh, crimes against humanity. Mr. Prosser is ambassador to Germany, having held the same role in the UK, and he's also been Israel's permanent representative to the UN. He's been telling me that his country has only one objective now. Israel has decided to move from containment to eradication. What does it mean? It means removing the Islamic State of Hamas and all its military infrastructures from our borders. Now, this might, to make the comparison, it's like uh, ISIS was seen as an undefeatable ideology rather than a military organization. Now, this task seemed difficult and even daunting at times. But if we really stand together, we are able and we should be able to do that. Welcome to Powerplay, Politico's transatlantic interview show, where I talk to some of the most influential figures on either side of the Atlantic to discover how power is changing around them. And this week, there was only one story the Powerplay team wanted to focus on, the horrific events unfolding in Israel that have sent shockwaves around the world and reflect the changeable power balance of the Middle East and its alliances. Israel is calling up hundreds of thousands of reservists as the military appears to be mobilizing for a large-scale ground offensive. But as Pentagon today announced the U.S. is sending military assets closer to Israel, including one of the Navy's most advanced aircraft carriers. My team has been in near constant communication with our Israeli partners, and partners all across the region and the world from the moment this crisis began. The solidarity of support from Israel's allies, led by the United States, is palpable. But how will a protracted ground offensive in Gaza, in retaliation for the Hamas-inflicted slaughter of over 1,200 Israelis, test that resolve? Deaths among Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip have already exceeded 1,000 as Israeli airstrikes intensified. A humanitarian crisis looms. Saturday's events were an epoch-changing attack, being compared to Israel's 9-11. The reverberations of that Hamas offensive are felt across the Middle East and beyond. I'll be joined by two of Politico's reporters who work in depth on this story, and I'll be speaking to Fleur Hassan Nahum, 
Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, to get an insight into the mood in her city. Does she see any glimmer of hope? First, though, have a listen to Ambassador Ron Prosser. The horrendous events of the last few days, Ambassador, may have unified the Israeli people and many allies in Europe and in the US. Do you think this solidarity is built to last? So first and foremost, I'd like to uh, state before we go into that, that when you think about it, and especially as Israel's ambassador to Germany, Saturday, October 7, is the single most deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. The scenes of Jews being hunted in the forest by bloodthirsty animals strike, for me at least, personally an unpleasant chord with anyone who saw the scenes or heard the survivor stories from Germany and Eastern Europe during the Second World War. Now, you know, we've all seen the horror stories of helpless women that have been raped in front of their families, taken with their children to Gaza, and as well as whole families being burnt alive in their homes. Everyone has a personal friend or a story. A friend of my son, him, his wife, and his three children were basically shot in the head in their house. I think that Israelis will never forget, and I hope and pray that the whole world will never forget. And that basically answers the question that you say, you ask me. I hope that the world will not go back. And it's back to basically talking about the cycle of violence talking about, you know, proportional response. And it's our job as diplomats, leaders, U.S. journalists, that people make sure that this narrative, this truth, is never forgotten or distorted. And if I were to ask you, given what you've laid out and this terror that has afflicted Israel, what you think a retaliation can achieve, how would you frame that for me? So uh, taking your question, I think, sadly, the state of Israel and many in the Western world, it took them too long to recognize that the strategy of containment with Islamic jihadists does not and will never work. So Israel has decided to move from containment to eradication. What does it mean? It means removing the Islamic state of Hamas and all its military infrastructures from our borders. Now, this might, to make the comparison, it's like uh, ISIS was seen as an undefeatable ideology rather than a military organization. Now, this task seemed difficult and even daunting at times. But if we really stand together, we are able and we should be able to do that. I noticed in an earlier answer, you said to me that that there's something, you used the word proportionate, which is obviously flying around in the debate. Is that a a word that you feel is in itself proportionate? I mean, people will say there has to be some idea of what is fair or right if it also affects so many civilians, as well as the Hamas fighters that you said you're trying to eradicate. Look, at this stage, all gloves are off. I mean... What you've seen in Israel happening, we've never seen before. This is beyond wars, uh, crimes against humanity. This is a jihadist 
ideology that we, I think, and the world has basically really tried to trivialize. No, though this is, if you really want me to brand this, this is civilization against barbarity. This is good against bad. This is people who basically act as animals and do not have any, any respect for children, women, and all they do indiscriminately is kill citizens in a way that we, I mean, I'm an ambassador, Israel's ambassador to Germany. The state of Israel, the nation state of the Jewish people was founded in order to allow Jews to have a safe haven, to control our destiny, our faith. What has happened, and it makes me sad on the one hand, it makes me angry because of the constant demonization and delegitimization in international forums against Israel. And in brackets, I was Israel's ambassador to the United Nations. But it also makes me proud that today in 2023, when this is happening, we have an army. We can protect ourselves and we will never allow this to happen again. And where do the Palestinian people fit into this? Those who do not support Hamas, but are inevitably so badly affected by what has been described as a total siege of Gaza. Your thoughts on that? They do not support Hamas. I didn't find out that they don't support Hamas. The people that you saw out, you know, raping, killing, and shooting families, little children, and burning, burning people alive in their own homes. Those are the people in Gaza. So in essence, trying to differentiate that is a real problem. But now it has to be clear that this bloodthirsty animals, they will pay a price that they will not even think three, four or five times before they dare attack Israel, declare war, one-sided, unprovoked. And all this talk that you can basically contain them is a huge mistake that we have paid with our lives for it. And I think the world should really stand with Israel because what we're encountering, Western democracies, hopefully will not have to encounter. But as the war escalates, if the aim is to crush Hamas, as you described, to remove it from power in Gaza, that suggests a very long and bloody siege of Gaza and there will be humanitarian consequences. Now, you've used the word animals to describe Hamas and to describe those who attacked Israel in such a dreadful way. But do you accept that there will be massive other human collateral damage here? And how do you approach that? Okay, I know that you don't mean that, but don't put us on the same level. This is a suggestion. Israel, all the time, since its establishment, has basically made a point in trying not to hurt civilians, doing everything, putting our, our soldiers and officers in jeopardy because of that. We will keep on trying to do that, but this time around, we have 
to really destroy this terror infrastructure. We have to destroy their ability every two years to go back and do the same thing again and again, and also to understand the ideology. You know, when they say they want to basically eradicate Israel, when they say that every Jew hiding behind a tree, we will go and basically assassinate him or murder him, we tend to really see that as something which, yes, it's talk. No, it's not. It's an ideology that looks at us all as decadent societies, soft, weak, and they think they can really win this. And like ISIS, you know, we have to stand together and eradicate this for the welfare of any civilized person. Can I just uh, jump in there and you say eradicate this? Isn't there a risk that you end up trying to manage a population of over 2 million, overwhelmingly hostile and desperate people. Gaza, of course, one of the most densely populated places in the world in a state of chaos. Yeah, Uh, we're going back to the same arguments in the past. I'll remind you and our listeners that Israel decided to unilaterally leave Gaza, right? Leave Gaza, take out all the 22 settlements and even four settlements in the West Bank. We went out of Gaza never to look back into Gaza. And basically, if you think about it, the equation is pretty simple. If it's going to be quiet in Israel, it's going to be quiet in Gaza. They could have turned Gaza into Singapore. So the minute you have such a terror organization that uses terror, and you know, terror is too soft. I mean, look at what they've done. This is in you. I mean, I can't, I, you know, I'm, I'm missing the words to basically tell you why I'm so angry. Because those people have no place, no place. This cannot continue. And it. we won't go back to this containment policy that doesn't work. First, we have to dismantle the infrastructure of terror. And then we can basically think of the next stages. I noticed you had criticised a pro-Palestinian demonstration in Berlin at the weekend, holding up Palestinian flags and chanting, Palestine will be free. We've seen similar scenes in parts of London and also actually around the the Labour conference in Liverpool in the UK. I think you said on German television this was an abuse of German democracy. Do you think the authorities in Germany, the UK and other European countries should suppress these demonstrations? I understand very strongly that you you don't agree with the view of the demonstrators, but do you think they should be suppressed? So I'm asking you, I mean, Samidun in Berlin, not just giving sweets, dancing, basically shouting death to Israel, death to Jews, and uh, bringing money over to Hamas. This is happening in Berlin, on German soil. This is clearly, they and others like them, but let me focus on Samidun, are a Trojan horse of German democracy on every every democratic country. They need to be punished. They need to be stopped. 
if anyone doesn't want Berlin to be turned into Gaza. They clearly are coming with all the perceptions and the hatred that they received from, you know, where they came from about Jews and Israel. And they do that freely here in Germany, using and abusing the democratic structures. To your mind, should they be stopped from doing so? Well, what a question. I mean, should they be stopped? Absolutely. They should be stopped because you need to understand that those people don't have red lines. We've seen that. Anyone who basically talks, yeah, it's an issue of education. Of course, it's an education issue. But education takes years. You have to be very clear in the boundaries that you set, in the red lines for those people that don't allow Israelis or Jews in Germany and other places in the world to run around freely and in security. Uh, so that's what we have in Europe. And again, it's part of this not understanding who you are up against. Would you extend that to those who are not waving flags or banners saying they support Hamas, but to those who are simply taking a strong pro-Palestinian stance? I mean, do you see any distinction there or do you not really accept that distinction anymore? Of course, they're, they're supporting Hamas. They're saying that they're supporting Hamas. And again, all those distinctions, okay? Basically, even what you you said on, you know, Palestine, free pass from the river to the sea, huh? where does it leave Israel a place? So basically, they're talking about eradicating the state of Israel. In the sense, all those former ideas that people are stuck with for years, okay, in trying to really trivialize or not trivialize and find, you know, ways to explain, that doesn't work. They see that as absolute weakness, and they, those people, have to be really dealt with in, the, in what the law, and if, you, if the law doesn't allow that at this stage, the law has to be changed. The priority for the West has been on brokering Israeli peace deals with uh, Arab states. Uh, we've seen that Israel-Saudi deal has taken a considerable amount of, of time and effort and in a sense building some trust to hammer out. It does look to be in jeopardy now. Do you see scope for that to continue or do you think it's off the table in the circumstances in which we find ourselves? I think we have to deal about those issues afterwards. When I say afterwards, uh, the whole neighborhood is watching. There has to be a clear signal on jihadist Islamic ideology. And we can continue afterwards because uh, it's obvious that we have to. But at this stage, this is the first priority, the first priority. And we should not forget that uh, because only a clear win and dismantling of Hamas's infrastructure will allow us to move into the next stage. Let's turn to some hard questions, both for Israel and then I'd like to ask about the allies. In the last few months, the country's been deeply divided, as you know, over judicial reforms by the government, reservists and air force staying at home in, in some numbers. Do you think this was seen as a sign of weakness on Israel's part uh, and therefore provided 
a time to strike or is this, you know, in danger of becoming, if you like, a party political, you know, I don't want to trivialise the, the issue, but a football because each side claims that the other side's political shortcomings have led to or opened up the opportunity for this strike. What's your view? I think uh, our political uh, internal fights uh, basically, of course, could have been perceived as uh, as weakness. Uh, I don't think they needed any reason to really do what they've done now. I don't think the Iranians need additional reasons for this or Hezbollah up in the north. We are up against enemies that basically have set to really eradicate the state of Israel. They say it, they repeat it, and we and you have a problem really internalizing this. And you can also add the fact that, you know, it's not coincidental that things like this happening suddenly where there's uh, negotiations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, that Iran wants to basically, uh, you know, get this uh, neighborhood in war and in fire to uh, derail that. So all those elements are true. I think they're relevant, but they don't take away the issue of an organization that from its establishment, in its ideology, has said that all it wants to do is kill as many innocent Jews as possible. How worried are you that this conflict will spread uh, across the region? You you referenced Iran there. I'm, I hope, uh, for brevity, taking for granted that you believe that Iran was materially involved and uh, backed this attack for a start. I mean, is, am I right about that? Just so I'm clear. Yeah, I think uh, we are worried that this will go over in more than one front. I have to say that we appreciate President Biden and the United States of America who sent aircraft carriers, a quite clear symbol, and airplanes to the region giving a clear signal to Iran has to think twice if it really wants to uh, escalate here. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Thank you. Let's hear now from Jerusalem, a city that has particular significance in the troubled history of Israel. I spoke to Fleur Hassan Nahum, Deputy Mayor of the city. You're part of the leadership of a a city that represents one of the most sensitive and complex fault lines in the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. This is the worst violence in Israel and in Gaza for many years. It's of epic proportions. What is the mood like in Jerusalem at the moment? Well, you know, that's a, a very good question because normally people feel that Jerusalem is kind of like the frying pan of the problem. And the truth is that, in fact, you know, 40% of the population of Jerusalem are Muslim Arabs. And for the most part, we live, we work together. And, you know, the day-to-day here is much less dramatic than what it seems from outside Jerusalem. Of course, we have some issues with radicals and fundamentalists. We have an issue where the education system of the majority of the kids in the uh, in the Arab side of town, unfortunately, is full of incitement, hatred, in some cases, anti-Semitism. But overall, it's not been difficult over the last few days in terms of it's been calm. We've had some scuffles and clashes. The mayor um, bolstered the security around the neighborhoods of the scene, we call it, which is the neighborhoods between Jews and, and Arabs. 
But for the most part, you know, we all live and work together. I just went out and, you know, my butcher is Arab and we were chatting like nothing. And we're used to this, unfortunately. I hate to say it, perhaps not at this scale. But I, I also think that the Arabs here in Jerusalem and in, in general, in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, are not very connected to the Gazan uh, Palestinians. Well, people seem to put all the Palestinians in one bucket and they're really very different. A fair point, but how fearful are you that the people you represent in Jerusalem in this conflict will potentially be faced with an escalation? Do you see the danger that the West Bank tensions and recriminations rise? And You do have flashpoints galore, don't you, in, in Jerusalem's old city? So we'll have to see what happens this Friday, because that's really normally the day of clashes. And so we'll have to see what happens this Friday. There may be uh, restrictions uh, in terms of different religions going to pray if we feel they're going to be flashpoints. But the police, uh, I think, are doing a pretty good job in Jerusalem for the moment. And really, I feel very sorry for the Israelis in the south of Israel, who not only have been the target of massive rocket fire the last 15 years, but have now experienced essentially a massacre of a type and a scale that has not been seen in the history of the state of Israel. Because even though we've had four very bloody wars that we never started, but there's never been this type of civilian casualty uh, as we've seen in in the last few days. Do you think the city will end up perhaps with much more stringent security controls? And I'm thinking of those near lockdown conditions after the second intifada and when life was very much affected. I was in uh, Jerusalem at the time doing some reporting and also around those famous monuments and often contested religious sites. Isn't there a danger that if you leave it perhaps as open as you would like to because you want a city that goes about its business and where people still are able to mingle across religious lines that you could expose people to risk? Well, the truth is that we know where the flashpoints are and our intelligence knows where the flashpoints are. And I've got to tell you that over the last five years, not just because I've been in this administration, because I was also in the previous administration, the mayor has built an incredible uh, amount of positive bridges with the leadership in East Jerusalem. And I'll tell you where the... um, I guess the pinnacle of the relationship in a good sense was COVID because during COVID we were fighting for the first time ever, I would say the first, the the same enemy. And so we created these task forces for volunteerism. We, you know, we put all the special needs families together, Jews, Arabs, ultra-Orthodox Jews. And it was almost like for us that there was a real silver lining to the cloud of COVID in that We built the infrastructure for what feels today like one city and not two, if you know what I mean. And those relationships are really taking us through very difficult moments. Like I said, there's bad apples everywhere. There's certainly fundamentalists um, in certain areas of East Jerusalem. We know which areas in East Jerusalem are more Hamas supporters. and we, We know which areas are more moderate middle class. We know which areas are Christian Arabs. We know we know where everybody is. And so when we have had flashpoints, we know also to kind of isolate those areas and not kind of have to close everybody down. And so I really do have uh, trust because because we're so experienced, because we've had so many problems, 
we, we're pretty experienced. I mean, let me just give you an example. In the old city, we have 300, and, it's a one square kilometer. We have 360 CCTV cameras. Honestly, you can't scratch your ear without somebody seeing it. And so we have that infrastructure in place. Can I just uh, pick up on that? Because it is obviously a subject uh, once we get through this dreadful period of the, of the immediate shock and grief and anger, there will be huge criticism of the intelligence gathering failures, uh, which allowed this attack to happen, or at least to happen in the scale, disastrous scale, at which it did. Do you still feel that you have faith in Israeli defence and intelligence, given what's happened in the south of the country? I have to tell you, I feel like I've been through the, the stages of mourning. Saturday and Sunday, we were all in shock, traumatised, depressed. Um, yesterday, the mood turned to defiance, resilience, and let's get on with this. Now, the day after the conflict, please, God, may the price not be too high, more than it's already been. I'm assuming, people, the anger will come out of how did it happen, but we can't be dealing with that right now because we have 150 hostages over there. We have people in the south of the country who've lost entire families in deep trauma. We have supplies and uh, logistics to get to. We're busy being resilient right now, fighting back right now, being defiant right now. The day after, I'm sure that that's going to turn into anger, recrimination, and what the hell happened here? We're supposed to have the best intelligence in the world. The late Teddy Kollek, of course, for decades, mayor of Jerusalem, advocated tolerance and outreach to the Arab community. And he was often criticised for that. He had both fans and detractors, as you can imagine, in that position. It's not the dominant response, perhaps, to this attack, or at least certainly what we heard in the tone from the ambassador to Berlin in the rest of this podcast. Do you believe you can still preserve that spirit of outreach, of some kind of hope of getting a peaceful resolution back on track, despite the avowed attempts of Hamas to stop that happening and to drive a cycle of violence? Well, I actually do. And let me tell you what has surprised me this time. And this is really, like I said, unprecedented and we can't compare it to any of the other attacks that we've had over the last 15 years in Gaza, from Gaza, is that I've seen many moderate Palestinians disavow themselves from what's going on. And that's new, because normally they're either quiet or kind of we're all in this together. What's new is that you have huge influencers like Nas Daily going and saying, I was a Palestinian Israeli, and now I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, and I'm Israeli first. That's, you know, and, and he's not the only one. I've, I've received dozens of people like that. Now, I think that, you know, cost of life aside, which is horrific, I think Hamas PR-wise is has put itself in a very problematic position that um, the Palestinians always kind of played on the victim card, even though, again, people don't understand the history. They don't understand that Israel has never started a war. All the wars uh, have been existential against us. The fact we left Gaza in 2005, they've been ruling themselves. People don't really get that because all they know is hashtag politics, you know, free Palestine. That's what they know. Coming up on Power Play, our own power panel will be joining me to explore what you've just heard and what it might mean for the wider region and the world. A message from Novavax. 
Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. The company's vaccine technology is built on a protein-based platform and combines the power of a well-understood approach with an innovative nanoparticle technology. It is intended to help protect against some of the world's most pressing viral diseases, including COVID-19 and influenza. Novavax is collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry, to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Because protecting one of us can help protect all of us. Learn more at www.novavax.com. Powerplay isn't just about our featured guests. It's also about how Politico's top journalists on both sides of the Atlantic can help us unpack what we've just heard. And joining me this week are Lara Seligman, Politico's defence reporter in Washington, D.C., and Sam Wilkin, policy editor in Brussels, who's lived in the Middle East and indeed on the West Bank. Laura, what did you make of Ron Prosser's very stark declaration that we've just heard that Israel's aim is to eradicate Hamas from Gaza, from where you're sitting in Washington? Do you think the Biden administration will support that aim come what may? Well, I think we've seen some very strong comments, uh, not just from the ambassador, but also from the Biden administration in recent days. We just had Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin talking about calling the attacks appalling, we had a senior defense official over the weekend saying that this is ISIS-level savagery. So I do think that there's strong language all around. And I think that the Biden administration has said they're going to support Israel, whatever it takes. I don't think they've said anything about red lines. I can't imagine that they are advising Israel to do a ground invasion of Gaza. I think that would become an even more explosive situation in the Middle East, a region that's already in a lot of turmoil right now. But I, I do think that we're seeing that same kind of language echoing from the US to capitals in Europe. So I think this is a really extreme situation. And I think that the Biden administration is going to back Israel, whatever they decide to do. Sam, you're familiar with the Palestinian perspective, having lived in the West Bank. What do you think is intended to be achieved here? We heard the ambassador at the end saying if there were risks and if there were potential downsides to this very strong retaliation in Gaza, well, along the lines of that's for the future, now you know, we are fully entitled to go ahead. What did you make of that? I found it really interesting what he was saying about it being an, a real ideology. And I think we in Europe and in the West more broadly sometimes have difficulty in understanding between real religious ideology that's not rational and and a political position. And often, you know, Hamas statements get translated. Firstly, li literal translation from Arabic into English, they're softened. Um, and they're also softened as they make their way into the the Western media. And I think what he was saying really is believe them, believe them when they say we want to wipe out Israel. That, that doesn't mean we want to reconfigure Israel as a state. That means they want to wipe it out. And this extreme attack, I think, has really shown that. And I think what the ambassador was saying, what many other Israeli commentators and leaders are saying is they do just want to wipe us out. And the reaction needs to 
take that into account. Lara, I saw, I saw you were nodding to that. Is that the view that is felt around Washington? I was struck by you saying you didn't get a sense that there would be red lines, but that is perhaps easier to say at the beginning of the counter-assault on Hamas in Gaza than it is when we will be seeing pictures of a growing humanitarian crisis and the situation in Gaza is already very pressured. How do you think that will be factored into plans for supporting Israel in Washington? Well, I think it's a very nuanced situation. I think the Biden administration is in a very tricky position here because they also have the crisis in Ukraine going on. And I think there's this very interesting split screen here when you have many, even Republicans in Congress, saying they don't want to support aid for Ukraine anymore. But then those same people are calling to support Israel no matter what. So you have these very different factions calling for different things. And I think the Biden administration has to be very, very careful in what they do right now. So I think we've seen officials in the Biden administration just reiterate like their commitment to Israel. We saw the Pentagon deploy an aircraft carrier, strike group, multiple, there's a cruiser, there's guided missiles, destroyers, augmented the fighter squadrons in the region and sending additional ammunition and other aid. They're rushing that to Israel. So that's a very clear signal um, of U.S. presence in the region. It's uh, supposed to be a signal of deterrence. And I don't think we've seen any signals yet that the Biden administration is not going to support Israel, whatever it does. We haven't heard anything about about red lines, but it does become a tricky situation when you see the humanitarian crisis that is inevitably going to start in Gaza. Sam, is there that same sense of uncompromising support, strength in European capitals? And how has the response been that you've been monitoring? The response in Europe has been a bit muddled, frankly. This is often the case. Europe is traditionally less pro-Israeli than the US. There's also a lot of nuance between different European countries and between different groups. We've seen the European Commission. Uh, we had one commissioner from Hungary who, who said there would be an immediate suspension of all aid to Palestine, including the West Bank, including humanitarian aid. Um, and he was then contradicted a couple of hours later by others in the commission, which is really an extraordinary failure of hierarchy and of communication. But elsewhere, I have seen a turning point in, you know, particularly in the left in Europe, which um, has traditionally been very pro-Palestinian. Some still are, and there have been some appalling demonstrations in the streets of many European cities that were effectively celebrating the attacks. But anybody in the establishment pretty much has been unequivocal in condemning the attacks, in showing solidarity with Israel. We've seen the Israeli flag light up the European Commission headquarters, the Berlimonts. We've seen similar in Paris, Rome and Berlin. That may start to change in the coming days and weeks as the image of that attack fades and we start to see some awful pictures coming out of Gaza and we will see some awful pictures coming out of Gaza. And I suspect the European response then might move towards being calling for restraint by Israeli forces as well. Just quickly, Sam, I was interested in Fleur, our second interviewee, who's deputy mayor in Jerusalem. I was asking her whether she saw the danger of escalation there in the West Bank, where I think you lived for a while. She was reasonably optimistic, I thought. How did that strike you? 
Yes, that's interesting. There was always a radical strain in popular thought in in the West Bank. It is not limited to members of Hamas, and it's it's really difficult to draw a line between sort of Hamas on one side and the civilian population on the other that just wants to get on and have a quiet life. And there is a lot of grey area between them. We did see some footage of celebrations in the West Bank following the attack. To be honest, there were also celebrations in the West Bank following 9-11, 2001, when that happened. It's a very frequent thing. Remains to be seen whether the West Bank will flare up as well or whether Hamas has gone too far even for there. Lara, as one of our defence experts in Washington, failures of intelligence by Israel. I get the sense that there's a bit of a desire to go lightly on those at the moment in this period of, of intense grief and mourning and coping with the aftermath of the attacks. But are we any closer to understanding how this could have happened? What are your sources telling you about that? Well, I think it was a massive intelligence failure by Israeli intelligence officials, which are supposed to be some of the best in the world. And also there's maybe some blame on the part of the U.S. as well, since the U.S. does share intelligence with Israel. But Israel really is known for having this vast intelligence network across the Middle East. They're very good in the cyber realm, intercepting communication signals. Um, They obviously have this vaulted air defense system with the Iron Dome. So the question, I mean, how did this happen? How did this get past all of their defenses? And I, I do think that there is some speculation right now that perhaps many of the planning meetings took place in person in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank, um, Iran, perhaps. Well, I don't think American officials have a smoking gun that Iran was involved in greenlighting the attacks themselves. Certainly, Iran was involved in supplying the weapons, training the soldiers, funding the whole operation. So I think that the U.S. intelligence community is looking at that right now. And But, but I, I do think it was a massive intelligence failure. And I think maybe people are saying that perhaps we, Israel, got complacent. And maybe we were distracted by Ukraine and the ongoing pivot to the Pacific that the each successive U.S. administration has talked about. So maybe we took our eye off the ball in the Middle East. Sam, there still seems to be some uncertainty about how directly involved Iran was or, or not. And as Lara says, if it, if it did not give the go signal, certainly it had prepared uh, Hamas and supplied with weapons and other operational capacity for many years. So it can't have been entirely a a surprise. Do you think this will affect the West dealings with Iran materially? It might do if there's a smoking gun. I also covered Iran back in the day, and it's a very, very complex place with very different branches of the state operating somewhat independently of each other. As Lara said, we know they provided material money, probably some training, uh, and certainly moral support. And you know, the the Iranian leadership released a statement following the attacks, celebrating it. What we don't know is whether Iran was actually involved in the operational planning of this particular attack or knew about it happening. And the complete lack of signals intelligence suggests there was probably limited traffic between Iran and, and Hamas in Gaza in preparing the attack. So if there's a smoking gun, that could change everything. That could potentially lead to an Israeli retaliation on Iran proper. Until then, I suspect all sides will want to keep this limited. Israel doesn't really want to have a fight on many fronts, I imagine. We've also seen Hezbollah 
pretty much holding back. There have been some token exchanges of gunfire over the border into the Golan Heights, which is territory that is considered to be occupied by Israel. It's historically Syrian. There hasn't been a Hezbollah attack on Israel proper. Israel hasn't attacked Hezbollah back. So there's a bit of restraint on on the other fronts at the moment. Lara, I know you have to run off to a, a press conference in Washington, probably one of the many that you will be going to in the aftermath um, of this attack and in this crisis. So thank you both for joining us, my power panel, Lara and Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. That's it from me this week. I hope you found the show informative. And for more of our interviews and analysis, do follow us on your favourite podcast platform. We hope to be following this story and the geopolitical implications next week. But for now, we'd love it if you could leave us a review and tell us what you think of the podcast. We do take it to heart. Our producer in London is Peter Snowden. And from Berlin, the executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. Do join us next week for another edition of Power Play. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com.